be calm, no workout. Yes, uh, never fear. Old miserable is here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was listening to the president there. You've got to you've got to concede that a chief executive delivering the State of the Union message is an impressive spectacle. I mean, it really is. And um, we have TV set and listening to the sound here coming out of the wire. We had a couple of monitors going on watching the president and quick pans of the House of, of, of Congress, you know, the senators and the representatives and the cabinet members, and there must have been a hundred trillion billion people listening to the speech. And I kept, of course, being a performer, uh, I, I, uh, I kept thinking of the performer. I'm not talking about how the speech is performed. After all, the man giving a speech before large numbers of people giving a talk is performing, no matter who he is. If you get up in front of the PTA and complain about the, uh, the pineapple upside-down cake, uh, you're performing. You're either performing badly or performing well, depending on whether they really get mad and walk out on you. But uh, nevertheless, watching, watching the president, I thought, you know, I'm watching him because he's the 36th president. Now, there have been only 36 men in the entire history of the United States. And uh, there have been a lot of people who have uh, lived and walked around and scratched and been in the United States since the very beginnings of the whole thing. But there's been only 36 people who have had that experience of standing in front of the whole nation and <laughs> delivering an address about how the whole scene is going. That's an interesting concept, the state of the nation. Uh, you know, it's like a report. That's uh, like uh, every year, uh, the ladies of the book club, the uh, secretary-treasurer gets up and goes, Well, last year, as you all know, we had a difficult year financially. And immediately, spoo, boo, boo, that'll, that'll, ba, ba, ba. Almost said it, uh, boo, boo. And, <laughs> and, but here is a man standing up before the entire nation. And he's uh, the chief. And you may not like him. Or you may like him. But he is the chief. We all know this, recognize this. The world knows it and recognizes it. And uh, watch, every time I see a president or a major, I mean really major, I'm not talking about the mayor of New York or something. I'm talking about a major world political figure like Charles de Gaulle or uh, the late Winston Churchill or uh, the late, any, the presidents of the United States. Uh, somebody, that's, that's really heavy caliber. That's, that's the big time. That's, that's all the way. You know, that's, that's even bigger than old Johnny Carson. I mean, that's, that's really up there. And uh, every time I watch the president perform, any president, I always get this feeling, you know, he's a human being as well as a leader. It's easy to forget this because there are so many symbolic things surround kings and leaders and great uh, statesmen and one thing or another, we tend to forget that this is a guy who gets up in the morning and shaves. A man. And uh, that must be an interesting experience, too, to every morning shave the President of the United States. <laughs> you know, it really must be. And uh, I, I watched the President and listened to him. And as a 
performer, I thought to myself, what a fantastic, Jack, imagine, what a fantastic feeling it would be. I, I think it's an unimaginable feeling because there's only 36 men that have ever known it in the history of the United States. Uh, you're standing in the wings and, and uh, you're just you're just trying to straighten your hair a little bit. Your hair's hanging down. You straighten it up a little bit. You're straightening your tie. And, uh, you're in the wings. And uh, there's a kind of a hush out there. And suddenly you hear this voice, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, the Honorable Charles W. Applerot. And here's Charlie, see? Old Charlie from the Warren G. Harding School. Old Charlie, who faked his way through spelling. Old Charlie, who phoned his way all the way through algebra. Charlie, who was the first one cut when they fell out for football that spring, freshman year. Little old Charlie Applewood now steps up to the podium and the assembled might of the entire nation, 200 million strong, wait to hear Charlie's words, every word. that feeling deep down inside. No, you, you, you must get this now. Uh, there has to be that split uh, in the man who is the president. Because, you know, see, he himself grew up all of his life watching presidents. You know, when you're a little kid, when you're, when you're two, you don't think of yourself as going to be president. I don't, no matter how much uh, hogwash is written about this kind of stuff later, when they, you know, when the when the biographies are written that from the very earliest days, little Clarence uh, was reciting the Gettysburg Address, and, you know, forget it. Uh, uh, he, he is now president. There must, there must be a sense of unreality about it. That is, uh, no, I, I'm certain no matter who the president is, because he is both man and symbol simultaneously. Now, uh... Not many people have walked around and been a symbol. Now, that's not... No, I'm, I'm seriously speaking here. A genuine... Uh, this side of the presidency or this side of leadership is rarely discussed. Uh, you hear people constantly yelling about that. And that's one of the reasons why there is always profound distrust, I believe, it, with every leader. As long as I can remember from the time I was a little kid... There were always two schools of thought about whatever president was in. One school of thought was that he was a good president, and the other school of thought, that phony, what do you mean, you're really out of your mind. <laughs> no matter what president it is, it's hard to, it's hard to remember that. Uh, that certainly was uh, prevalent during the days of the late President Kennedy, even though we have a tendency now to forget the anti-Kennedy stuff that was very prevalent during the time. It certainly was prevalent during Eisenhower's administration. In fact, uh, I'd say a half dozen comics built their entire act on being anti-Eisenhower. <laughs> Whatever happened to Mort Saul? And uh, what was the other guy that built his entire act on Kennedy? Vaughn Meter. I mean, Vaughn Meter's probably back with the S.O. people now, or wherever it is that he sprang from. And so these these uh, these people are, are symbolic of that general feeling that always goes along with the suspicion of the symbol. Because symbols are, in a, in a sense, 
related to another side of man. Uh, it's related to the, to the uh, I suppose you might say, the, the side of man that constantly creates various symbolic images uh, in, I suppose you might say, the religious sense. Uh, because, after all, almost all religions are based on symbolic uh, beings, uh, symbolic forces. Uh, you go all the way back to the early Greeks, and uh, you have the you have the the symbolic god of the sea and the symbolic god of the fire and so on down the line. And and we we still do this. Uh, we 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 create these things, and so we believe that the symbol, since it is a symbol, must be infallible. And this is where the the great split comes, where you have the symbol on the one hand, which is uh, uh, the symbol of the all-knowing. We like to give superhuman insight to the presidents. Somehow we like to feel that that uh, a general, uh, if, if you're if you're in the armed forces, a general has a uh, he has a much larger view of life, knowledge of things than say if you're a corporal, T five. On the other hand, you are you still recognize the man. And so you see the general walking by, and you notice he's about 40 pounds overweight, and he's got high blood pressure, and uh, he drinks. And so there is a profound dissatisfaction and suspicion that settles in. <laughs> it's like you've been had. Uh, and so this is a constant problem uh, back and forth. And as it goes, it, it has ramifications in, uh, in uh, theological areas, too. And uh, so uh, the president as a man, must have problems in that department, too. Can you imagine, though, after all of your life you've heard of presidents, and uh, we've, president, uh, like all things in any given nation, there is a, a kind of a, a culture structure in any nation, in any tribe that exists. It always is there. There's always a leader. Uh, there's always uh, symbolic people like the healer. Uh, you find in the, in the, in the headhunter tribes there is the healer. And he is the the medicine man. We have our our healers, the doctors over here. And by the way, we have a tendency to to uh, to give them symbolic, almost uh, theological uh, overtones too. Doctors are somehow godheads, and uh, and you you find you find that the man who is in the position often has a lot of problems within within himself because he's lived in this atmosphere. Is this boring you, by the way? Uh, to me, I've often thought about that. He's li and I've heard it, nobody ever talk about it. He's lived in this atmosphere just like you have and I have. Now he may have come out of uh, like uh, Kennedy was uh, sort of a uh, an amateur, uh, interscholastic, uh, second-rate athlete at Harvard, and uh, you know just one of the guys. He dated ch girls and one thing or another, and uh, he he uh, suddenly found himself through a whole series of circumstances which at the time earlier when you're 18 or 19 years old you could never predict uh, he suddenly found himself president uh, President Johnson uh, in his early days was a school teacher he probably would have thought uh, he <laughs> seriously would have probably thought you were out of your mind if you had ever suggested that one day he would be president uh, this goes all the way down the line practically every president I'm sure never never conceived himself as president at the time when he was just growing up, and he was looking up at these great figures, like all the rest of us. And one day, through a whole series of little things, all things fell into shape, and little forms fell into position, and keys clicked, and locks snapped, and combinations rolled, and, and uh, die, dice 
rattled across fantastic tables of faith and uh, little lightning bolts, this and that. The next thing you know, here he is. <laughs> here, he's up there. Well, that must be a fantastic feeling. To say, all of my life, there has been this thing, this great symbolic, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful figure called the president. It's me. There ain't nobody above. You look up, and there's nothing but sky above you. <laughs> then what? Well, whew, uh, then you probably know something, and I suspect that any man who's ever been in a position of that kind, and I'm not talking about somebody who runs a little company or anything like that, I'm talking about anybody who's ever been in a position of that kind forever knows something that all the other people can only suspect. He knows something forever. And that's why I, I suspect that, that great past leaders, I mean, when, once he steps down and uh, becomes emeritus, they all have a vaguely cynical twinkle in the eye. You know, like, well, the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and I'm not making any comment one way or the other on any leader, but uh, they know their own mortality. And we have a tendency to demand immortality or superhuman powers from our leaders. We do. We don't like the way they talk. We don't like their accent. More people will complain about the president's accent about, than about anything he ever says. And it's always been this way. And so, ultimately, I've wondered about uh, some mornings when, uh, when let's say, uh, President Truman gets up in the morning. You know, they, there aren't 49 million people waiting every minute to see what he's going to say any longer. And he gets up, and he looks out, and it's raining a little bit. He's old Harry. And, uh, he's free to swear anytime he wants now. <laughs> it, it doesn't make headlines. And, the, Pres uh, the Presbyterian Church doesn't threaten immediate earthquakes throughout Ohio because he said hell. And uh, he looks out over the over the over the landscape, <laughs> and he is. And and I probably I suspect that that a guy like Truman would be one of the people, and I'm sure he is, that has that uh, that twinkle, that 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 uh, that knowing feeling in the eye uh, about this whole business of, of great leadership. Uh, I, I can't ever remember. I don't think any of you can either. You know, it's funny that whenever you suggest a thing like this, everybody thinks you're making some kind of a partisan speech. But I'm talking about the the, 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 the phenomena of the leader, whether he's the leader of France or Belgium or Holland or America. But uh, I can never recall in my days ever uh, knowing or hearing of a president who wasn't uh, on all sides uh, around me, attacked by thousands of people as being this idiot, this phony in the White House. <laughs> and it's always that way. It's a, it's a fact. And uh, I suppose that people always consider the man that they wanted in as the non-phony, and the one that did get in as the phony. It'll always be that way. Speaking of that, that this is WOR, by the way. It just fits nice. Uh, you know, it's a... It's a word association. Uh, this is WOR in Fun City here, friends. This is a radio-free Broadway. This is a... And, uh, would you please hit the money button there? Hit it there. <laughs> People on the go
yeah, 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 yeah. Miller. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, friends, do you like things right? Well, then, <laughs> that's an opening line. Then Miller High Life is your beer, friend. It'll make everything right. You'll get a smooth full of Miller High Life, and a lot of things that look rotten now are going to look great. That's Miller High Life, the champagne, the bottled beer. It's just right. On the go, You can see I ain't going to be president. Anybody that talks like... Let's see, we have a note here, speaking of uh, passing through the great parade. Let's see, here's a note. Uh, hey, listen, uh, if you'd like a really great food experience, I, I mentioned this last night or the night before, and I, I must repeat it again. Starting the 30th of this month, and you listen, because uh, this is really special, Mandarin House and Mandarin East... Uh, for those of you who've never eaten in Mandarin House or Mandarin East, these are two of the finest northern Chinese restaurants in America. They're great. One of them down is an, I had lunch there today uh, in Mandarin House down on 13th Street. And Mandarin East is up on 2nd Avenue off, right off 57th Street. Well, anyway, starting the 30th, these two restaurants are celebrating the Chinese New Year. And uh, that means fantastic food. If you've never had a symbolic Chinese New Year's feast, man, you've got a treat coming. That's ten courses, and this is Mandarin style, and this is your chance to really make it all the way. And, uh, by the way, each menu is different every year. It's, uh, it's changed from year to year according to an old traditional system of menus relating to variation. This is the year of the rat, or it's the monkey, the year of the monkey. Speaking of monkey, did I ever tell you about the time that I had monkey in Peru? Boy, that has nothing to do with the Chinese New Year, though. <laughs> so if you, uh, it's quite complicated. It takes a long time to fix this this uh, meal up. It's a 10-course Mandarin feast, and they have a winter melon soup, a Peking duck, a sautéed shrimp spiced with ginger. And it takes a long time to prepare these dishes, particularly, by the way, winter melon soup, if you've ever had it. So they have to know in advance. And if you'd like to make the scene, uh, they take parties of eight or more, can enjoy this banquet any time from January 30th through the 7th. Smaller parties, that's February 17th, rather. Even couples can order this banquet. It's very special, only during this, this couple of weeks. You can order it Monday through Thursday only, and you must make the reservations one day at least in advance. And uh, it's just $10 a person. And believe me, this is a fantastic treat for Ten bucks. Uh, it's Mandarin House is in the village, 13th, between 6th and 7th, and Mandarin East is on 2nd, between 57th and 58th. And if some weekend you'd really like to tie one on, it's just, you know, for, for two $10 bills, it's fantastic. If you'd like to call for reservations, it's Mandarin House or Mandarin East. You can pick either restaurant, and it's the same number, though. Watkins 90551. Watkins 90551. And tell them Charlie Chan sent you. <laughs> you know, Charlie Chan, I remember, you know, speaking of monkey, I don't want to get into that, though. I, that was one of the terrible traumatic experiences of my life. We have another commercial. I have no idea. What in the heck is this? Here's a commercial that says, an announcement that could not only change your career, but your whole life. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Uh, Harry Lorraine, 
is an amazing memory expert, a mental wizard. His books and well, his books and teaching. I like uh, I like simple statements of ego. He's a mental wizard and uh, teaching devices. Of course, there's other kinds of wizards, you know, that's, uh, other than the mental type. And uh, his teaching devices have sold over a million copies. He's uh, he's been on the Johnny Carson show and the Alan Birch and all these other intellectual type shows. And if you would like to be personally instructed by him in developing a fantastic, unbelievable superpower memory. Well, you call 989-5694. That's 989-5694, and they'll send you a booklet on how you can develop a superpower, fantastic, unbelievable, indescribable mental wizard memory. Why? I don't know why. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the, I've known more guys that have gone down the drain because they do have a good memory. Every guy that I know who gets ahead is the guy who can remember last Wednesday's big sales meeting that turned out to be a bust. Uh, if you keep remembering it, you're in trouble. <laughs> memory can get you more problems. <laughs> but if you'd like to develop a memory... On the other hand, it must be terrible for a guy who can't remember this morning. And there are many of those. So uh, you call 989-5694 and see what kind of a brochure he sends you. Which leads us to one other thing, another big announcement here. Uh, we are doing a big show that's been in, in uh, the works now for a couple of weeks, and there have been a lot of announcements in the Jersey papers about it, but it's for the benefit of the Raritan Valley Hospital. And all the money that is being collected for this show is going to buy a respirator for the hospital. Now, a respirator is for the intensive care unit. In fact, the doctors at the hospital were showing me pictures of this respirator. It's beautiful. It's, it comes in a nice... You can get seven different decorator shades. It's very nice. And that we're ordering an off-rose crackle finish. It's very, very nice. And it's for the intensive care unit. <laughs> but seriously, this is for Raritan Valley Hospital, and we're going to have this uh, intensive care... Uh, piece of equipment. It's a respirator. You know the thing that they always have on kill there that keeps going. You know the thing with the with the plastic bag. And well, that's what we're going to get. It's kind of fun. Well, we may even try it out on the stage that night if the show goes the way I'm afraid it may go. We may need it. However, uh, that's going to be <laughs> at Raritan Valley, and if you'd like to attend this thing, it's, it's, it, we're, we're going to really have a great, because the entire audience is going to be filled with doctors and, you know, that whole scene, and it's going to be Friday, February 26th, if you live out in that area, Friday, February 26th at 8 o'clock, Middlesex High School, we're going to hold it in the auditorium in the high school there, but it's going to be held for the Raritan Valley Hospital, and that's out on Route 28 in Middlesex, New Jersey. Middlesex, is that is that what all those guys are down there on Greenwich? Huh? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is my mom. She didn't hear it, so she didn't know what I was saying there. But uh, uh, for ticket information, you call Raritan Valley Hospital. You call, would I call that a breathe-in? No, it's more of a gasp-in. That's, that's, now, there's engineer humor. You know, Herb says, would you call that a breathe-in? <laughs> Oh, yeah, not bad. That's very good. Very good. A breathing. Yeah. Very good. I suppose if, if you're giving a big benefit for uh, blood donors, you call it a gorian, something of that name. Oh, that's awful. Ticket information. If you'd like to find out about it, call the hospital, Raritan Valley Hospital, and that's uh, area code 201. 
and you better get on a stick because uh, I understand the tickets are going fast. It's 201, and the number is 201-968-6000. Now write it down. That's area code 201-968-6000. And the extension to ask for is 256. That's the ether room. And, uh, we have, <laughs> that's 201. I repeat again, the Raritan Valley High. Oh, the date again, for those of you, I, I already there are people come. what date did he say? I didn't hear my radio. is isn't working good. That's Friday, February 26, 8 p.m. Huh? Well, you've got it written Friday, January 26th. Isn't that what I said? I said February? Well, then let's repeat it. It's Friday, January 26th. 8 p.m. Okay? That's, uh, well, listen, this is only, this is the 17th, so that's next Friday. It's a week from Friday, thereabouts. So, okay? Now, uh, everybody feeling better now? <laughs> we found out if they're listening. Was that one of the doctors? That was Frank? All right. One of the doctors frantically called in and said, No, 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 you've been saying February. No, no, no. You're lucky I didn't say July. But, uh, Middlesex. Now, I wonder how they got that name. Does that have anything to do with that phenomena on Lexington Avenue, Greenwich? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not putting it down. Sorry. Boo, boo, boo. All right. That put me in my place. But uh, thinking about that, I, I must get back to this. This matter. You know, there hasn't been really very much that I've read, and I've tried to find good material on it, on the psychology and the actual sensations of genuinely being a leader. And I, I'm interested in it. Uh, I've read a lot of books about presidents, and I've even read memoirs of presidents, but they never talk about that side of it. They always talk, and uh, if you've ever read any, uh, some of the dullest stuff I read in my life was Eisenhower's stuff. And, uh, you know, he never talks about his personal emotions, except to say, perhaps, uh, uh, I was deeply concerned when the note from the Uruguayan president reached my desk. Uh, calling the Secretary of State, we quickly ascertained, and I can think, it does not say, holy smokes. When that message came in, I thought I'd die. It was, <laughs> I mean, it looked like the jig was up. Well, I, <laughs> uh, I've thought about this, and uh, of course I come to no conclusion. I will tell you this, though, friends. You're, you're listening to a man who did have one unbelievable, nightmarish experience with an election. Now, there aren't many of us who... Uh, who actually have the kind of guts to allow ourselves to be judged. You know, most of us go through li our lives trying to be loved by people. Uh, we do. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why people envy or and are vaguely uh, afraid of and have all kinds of mixed emotions about people in showbiz, and that includes people who do radio shows, do shows down at the limelight, people who do the Johnny Carson show, one thing or another, is because every time they go on, they are literally asking and demanding to be judged. Now, uh, and, and in the cruelest sort of way. Now, like just a minute ago, I made one of my indescribable funnies. So I felt without any, any almost without, almost instant feedback, without any hesitation, I felt a gigantic wave of boo, 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 who hiss, hiss, boo, 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 It just came rolling back. And, uh, well, I mean, what do you do in a case like that? Now, not many guys are actually outright booed in their job. Uh, 
No, I, I, you know, here, here's, here's Charlie Witherspoon, you know. He's a second in command in the file department in the substation of the Allstate Insurance Company in White Plains. And uh, so Charlie misfiles the Watanabe file. Well, instantly, the entire steno pool doesn't leap up and on. Boo, 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 Charlie's a bum. Oh, uh, boo, boo, here's spoo, fire him, boo, boo. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, it's a little, you know, the little animal comes down or somebody straightens it out. But when you lay an egg in showbiz, it's laying out there, and, you know, and you can hear it clucking, and, and <laughs> you light it, and that's the end of it. So what, what do you do? Well, now, uh, uh, the ultimate egg laying is to, is to make a run for the presidency. Now, we've seen several, uh, we've seen uh, a few examples in our time of guys who, who perennially run. Uh, these, are, these are guys who perennially get up at parties and sell, tell the same bad joke. Now, I happen to know one doctor who has told me the same joke, I, I've counted it now, 14 times. Well, now, this is the equivalent of the, the politician who 14 consecutive years announces uh, 18 months before the party convention that he is not interested in the nomination and that uh, he is perfectly content to be the president of the JPIP Correspondence School University, where he is very happy to be now, and that he's writing his memoirs, and that uh, in response to thousands of uh, queries, he is not interested and would no, would under no circumstances entertain the nomination. Well, here he is running. You know he's running. And, uh, <laughs> and the sad thing it is, of it all is, is that is that a lot of a lot of guys in theory are great. When they start running, the scales begin to fall from the eyes. We have one current candidate right now who looked a lot better a year ago than he looks now because he's begun to talk. Uh, there's one guy <laughs> who made a speech tonight, as a matter of fact, who was quoted. I'm not talking about the president, who sounded a little bit like my aunt Min in his grasp of the complexities of uh, the nation in which we live. But uh, this, you know, this is all here today and here tomorrow and come and gone. And I remember sometimes, uh, I've often felt, of course, I think we are all we all vaguely suspect that men who rise to fantastic heights are driven by drums over which uh, they have no control and which we do not hear. The call. We, we use that phrase all the time, the call to greatness, the call to duty. If the people need my services, uh, if, uh, if the population demands, I will only under those circumstances um, consent. Well, we have this feeling that there is a call. There is such a thing as a call. Well, you know, one, one candidate now, who is obviously a national running candidate, uh, just a few years ago, was a sports announcer in a little Illinois radio station. Well, <laughs> and that's not putting down his background at all. But obviously, the call, suddenly uh, a lot of things began to fall right. And uh, it, was a, it was a strange place to get a call. And uh, so these, you never can really, you, there's no way of predicting it. Right now, conceivably, right now listening to me, right at this minute, it could conceivably be a kid uh, sitting in some university around here, sticking a pencil in his ear, 
chewing bubble gum and uh, kicking the uh, Captain Marvel comics under his desk as he's trying to fake his way through differential equations and listening to the radio right now and, so, and talking to his friends saying, hey, Marty, listen to this idiot. What is this dribble this guy's talking about? Ha, ha, wow. Well, it's conceivable that 20 years from now, I'm liable to be voting for that slob. Now, it is. It is very conceivable. <laughs> and uh, because we're living in, a, in an area, uh, this, the, the far east, this eastern seaboard, where we're being heard right now, where a great preponderance of many, many national politicians have emerged from this area. So it is conceivable there's a kid right now sitting out there eating a gigantic uh, big boy triple-deck hamburger and downing a Bonds awful, awful, awful. And uh, his skin is popping out, and he's our future leader. And uh, they're all the more for it. But these things all happen quite often. In fact, almost every time they happen, they happen by chance. It is a series of strange, and you can't predict the chance. Now, I'm going to give you a little example of that. I happen to know one case. Talk about the chance. Uh, I know a guy who was a little PR man. Well, public relations man had no interest whatsoever in politics. Well, public relations man. And uh, he was a pretty good one. And uh, he was kind of a suave type PR man. He had a little things like, uh, oh, the movie preview that was showing in town. Uh, an author that uh, wrote a book on how to paint cats on velvet would be in town. And he would take, a, take this author around to radio shows. You know, they're a little, what they call a real hack, little PR man. And he was a you know, young guy working away at his trade and honorably doing his job. But one day his boss called him and says, listen, we have a very unusual, very unusual account. And uh, we, there's a politician who uh, needs some PR work done in town and needs some interviews and so forth. And uh, you've got all the radio contacts and all the TV contacts. So uh, would you like to take over his radio contact work for this day? in New York. And he said, sure, okay. So he met the politician, no interest in politics at all. And this guy, by the way, was a nationally known politician, not just a local guy running for office. He was in office, and he was on his way to make a bid for the presidency, as it turned out. And uh, that was later. But he called him into his office and said, uh, glad to meet you, son. And uh, I uh, hear good reports from the agency that you know all the people in radio and uh, we'll see you tomorrow morning at breakfast, and uh, then you can give me the list of things you'd like me to do. So he dismissed him. So the kid goes out, and he makes a lot of uh, contacts, calls up, gets this guy booked on a lot of shows, and the next day he meets him, and they travel all around town. Well, by the end of the afternoon, the politician liked this guy. He really liked his personality. They got along great. And so the next day he got a telephone call from this man saying, Would you like to be on my staff? Well, here's a guy who's been going around plugging people who paint cats on velvet. So he said, uh, gee, uh, I don't know nothing about politics. He said, well, that's why I like you. And he said, okay. Well, within, within a year, this guy began to be quoted on national press wires. He began to be a national figure. Now he's a very important guy. Well, uh, again, you see, chance can work the other way. So they were galloping on their way. His man became very popular, and it was a great, tremendous upheaval of uh, popular support for this man. 
And uh, one day, I saw my friend, who was the PR man in town, and we were talking. He came back to New York one day, and I met him. We had lunch. You know where we had lunch? I'll tell you. We had lunch at the Times Square Horn and Hard Art. And, <laughs> and here's this guy, striped morning, tries a whole bit now. And, and we're, we were talking, and I said, well, what, what is, you know, what's, what's your future? I mean, what would happen if X got to be president? He'd say, well, he said that we've talked about that many times, and uh, he wants me to be his press secretary. Well, you probably know that the press secretary is one of the most important jobs in an administration. And he says, if he become, I said, you press secretary? You know, Humphrey uh, begging you for an interview? Brinkley calling you by your first name? Holy so Walter Cronkite saying hello to you? I mean, just like as if you were a real person? And then he says, yep. As a matter of fact, well, uh, right in the middle of all that, his candidate had a heart attack and died. That that was the end of his whole... Uh, he just back now, now he's back down with the other fishes. And, but the point I'm making, that had, this was all accidental. He could have gone on and... Uh, the next thing you know, this guy could have conceivably been a governor. As you know, several press secretaries have gone on into that division. Well, these, you know, the, the, the business of actually putting yourself on the line for, a, for an election, this is kind of a strange show tonight, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but the business of putting yourself on the line for an election is, is one of the first things you have to overcome when you become a performer. You know, so many people want to be a performer. I get more letters from kids who say, uh, Hey, Shep, I want to do a show like yours. Well, uh, okay. So you want to hit 350. Uh, you know, all right. Uh, but the, the, uh, the problem is, is the great, that, that invisible barrier that one has to go through between the private citizen and the public citizen. Most people grow up all their lives and remain all their lives private citizens, which means they are... They are handers out of criticism and rarely get any. If they do, it's gentle because it's man-to-man. -man. And so your immediate superior will come and say, you know, uh, Fred, uh, if you could get that out a little bit earlier than we planned, I'd appreciate it. That's gentle criticism that says get on the stick. Well, uh, showbiz and the performer's world is far more abrupt Uh one month the ratings come in and you're like uh, King Zog, head of the gypsies. And the next month your rating comes in and you're down there competing with the East Orange Police Department. You're waiting. <laughs> you know, well, so, so it's very abrupt. Uh, and, and furthermore, it's definite. There is no question about it. Absolutely. And so you get up on the stage and you say, a funny thing happened to me on the way down to the limelight. Blah, 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 whoopee, whoopee, wada, wada, wada. Dead silence comes roaring out at you. A couple of people get up and leave. One guy coughs loudly into the ferns. Well, uh, <laughs> so you, you, to make that transition to become a public person is not easy. The ultimate public person, of course, is the public person who goes into the kind of uh, political realm and area where uh, 85 novelists are writing novels to show that the president is a paranoid schizoid maniac. 
Uh, I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, where, where cartoons appear constantly. Where editorials, no matter what. I mean, if the president says, gee, it's raining, immediately 400 pickets start marching, the pro-rain pickets. I say, what do you mean? What's the matter with rain? Uh, and so this is the ultimate putting it on the line. Not many of us put it on the line. And uh, I suspect that one of the reasons why in our world the performer and the politician has become a kind of folk hero is because increasingly the private man in a great world of automation and faceless cities increasingly and incidentally from cradle to grave uh, security uh, union regulations increasingly the private man is immune from personal criticism and uh, there are many companies many uh, trade unions where the guy can arrive drunk he can run over the foreman with a bulldozer he can be found with the company funds in his back pocket and if you open your trap to him the union is going to have you up in five minutes and you're, you know, in short people are immune to criticism however the one group of people who are not only not immune but are fair game and uh, it's, it's almost uh, requisite that you do criticize them are people who are performers or and politicians and so naturally they would have to become a kind of folk hero in our time have you noticed that politicians have been increasingly compared with and have begun to merge with performers showbiz people have you noticed that hurt uh, that that you have you noticed also today that the man most likely to be elected is the most beautiful man physically the one who most looks like uh, Cliff Robertson uh, <laughs> the one who most looks like an actor uh, yeah, and, uh, and so uh, the, the, these two areas are beginning to merge very, very, very distinctly, very completely. Uh, I wonder about a lot of guys out of the past. You know, people often say, would Lincoln have been elected in the age of television? Yes, I think very much so. Because uh, Lincoln had an arresting uh, look about him, that the high cheekbones, the burning eyes. He would have he been a prime man to be elected in our time. I would say, however, that the... Cleveland would have died. Uh, Cleveland, uh, William Howard Taft would never have made it. William Howard Taft looks like everybody's Uncle Charlie. I'm your big, fat, you know, handlebombers. He couldn't conceivably have gone on because he just looks like the kind of guy that gets ahead of you in the line at the Horn and Hard Art and knocks your coffee on your foot. Uh, on the other hand, uh, not so with Lincoln. And so in this day of increasing immunity from personal criticism and personal danger you will find that the performers and the politicians their world is becoming increasingly dangerous oh yes the gulf is widening and so the 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 uh, the attacks on a president are far greater than they ever were in history and will continue to be all throughout as far as we know in the future and the attacks on performers are far greater than they ever were oh I mean absolute uh, uh, phonus balonus all the way up and down the line and I suppose uh, uh, that getting on the line is one of the most difficult things to do in a world where getting on the line can be fatal uh, 
can be truly fatal because once you destroy a man's ego, once you destroy a man's what he is to himself, you have effectively destroyed that man. And so it's truly fatal in the ultimate philosophical sense. Hang loose and be sure to continue to wear your false face, brave one.